Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. What I'm going to be giving in this first lecture is a general sketch of Aristotle's ethics. Um, and then later in the other lectures, we'll see how friendship fits into it. Okay, so in the ethics, which maybe you had a chance to take a look at, um, Aristotle begins by telling us what the science of ethics is about. And a science here means something like an organized body of knowledge. So don't be put off by the word science. It's not a science like, well, maybe it's a science like chemistry, but modern people wouldn't call it a science. It's an organized body of knowledge. Now, you might think that morality or ethics covers a part of life. So you might think that life is a big, complicated affair, and morality or ethics is one part of that, right? So, of course, you want to do a good job on the morality part of life, but there are other parts. There's your career. There's your hobbies. There's having fun. Um, but that's not Aristotle's way. That's, in a way, the, the first and biggest and, in a certain way, hardest thing to get. For him, the question of questions of ethics or of morality just are the questions of how we should live. He doesn't have like a special morality zone distinct from the having fun zone or the friendship zone or whatever, you just have living well um, or not so well, as the case may be. Um, <clears throat> so the first approach then is just to say for Aristotle, ethics is about living well. How do you live well? What does it mean to be courageous? What does it mean to be friendly? What does it mean to eat your soup correctly. These are all, I mean, the eat your soup correctly sounds sort of like a not very important thing, but it's not radically different. It's all just a question of, are you doing a good job or not? So on one, in what, that's one way of thinking what ethics is for Aristotle. Another, and for the purposes of this lecture, the other way of thinking about what ethics is, is it's about happiness. What is happiness? What kind of person do you have to be to be happy? How do you become that person? What do you need beyond being the right kind of person? So, 
I've just given you two accounts of ethics. One is it's the organized study of living well, and the other account is it's the organized study of happiness. Um, and you might wonder, what do these two have to do with each other? Um, and so that will emerge in the next 40 minutes. Uh, well, it'll happen sooner than that, I hope. Um, but keep that question in the back of your mind. So first, I'm going to just start talking about um, living well. And in order to do that, I'm going to get down to some details about action. Um, and Aristotle starts by saying that every action aims at some good, right? That's like the famous first line of the ethics. So um, this is a, actually a really important point. It's one of those points that is... It's one of those points that, in a way, is so obvious and familiar that it's easy to miss it. And you have to, like, stop and reflect for a while. Um, so everything that you do aims at something. So when you take the bottle of water and you go like this, you're aiming, you're, like, literally aiming to get it down your throat. Right? You're trying to do that. Um, right now, I'm trying to convey some ideas about Aristotle to you. You are trying to understand the ideas about Aristotle. All right? Now, he says everything. Is it really everything? That's a good question. But I, th I think the, the claim bears up um, under a lot of pressure. So here's an example of something which hardly, which seems like a sort of activity which hardly has any point or goal at all. So you wake up in the morning and you haven't had any coffee yet and you're just you just like go into the kitchen and you're like I don't know what you do but like you know you like you like touch something like the counter and then you go like this and then you like open the fridge sort of and then kind of close it. And said like if somebody said what are you doing and you're going to say I don't know. But on the other hand you're hardly acting at all, right? This is not a paradigm case of human action. This is a degenerate form of human behavior. You're not fully awake. You're not really conscious. This is like an act of a human being and not a human act. You know what I mean? Um, okay. So I think in a way, a case like this kind of supports Aristotle's point. If you find a crazy degenerate case, then you can start to think you found an exception. But you're talking about crazy degenerate cases. You're not talking about actual actions. Okay. So um, actions, activities, <clears throat> aim at something. And this something is a good. Now, you could, if you want, just insist that that's how we're going to use the word good. as just a technical word. That's not quite enough, though. Um, Aristotle is aware that some of the things that you aim at are the things that you're aiming at, but they're bad. Now, he could say, well, okay, sure, but it's a technical term. It's the good of your action, even though it's bad. I'm, some goods are bad, sorry, right? And just insist. But it's a little bit more than that. He would say, look, it's at least an apparent good. You think it's a good thing that you're doing here. You're wrong. And five minutes from now, you're going to think it's wrong, too. You're going to be like, what? Why did I do that? That was stupid. I can't believe it. Right? But at the moment, it seems good, or at least seems good in some respect. You know, you say, I know I'm going to say this thing. It's going to be funny. And this little voice is like, 
you're about to like humiliate your best friend and you're like, but it's funny. And then you say it and then you realize that was crazy. It was not a good thing to do, but it seemed good at the time. Right. And you chose it for that reason. Okay. So, so actions aim at goods or at least at apparent good. And the goods that they aim at are very important for making them the actions that they are. So if you want to know what somebody's doing, knowing what they're trying to pull off helps you a lot. So if you, if you see someone distributing a lot of green books on the roof of a house, I wonder if anybody catches the illusion here, you'll be like, what is this? And if the person says, well, the pipes burst above my collection of Greek lobes and they're all wet and now I'm spreading them out to try to dry them in the sun, then it would make sense, you see. There's something in Anscombe about this. Green books on a roof. Um, so when you see the point of an action, then it starts to make sense, right? If, 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 you, can, if you saw me gluing a lot of popsicle sticks together and you said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. I just like gluing popsicle sticks together. You would have trouble understanding me, right? It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that someone would do. But if I say, well, I'm building a castle, then you go, oh, okay. sort of. Okay. <laughs> now, and the goal of an activity sort of constitutes it as the kind of activity it is. And it's good and important to keep the goal of the activity in mind. And that might sound obvious, but, you know, you can forget. So you're in the backyard. You're kicking a soccer ball around with a four-year-old, and like the proper goal of this activity is keeping the four-year-old entertained and sort of building a bond, but then you start getting excited and you're like, you know, I can win, I can score a goal here. So you like, you make a really good tackle, the kid goes flying, you go <laughs> down the field, you score, okay, you lost sight of the goal of the activity here, right? And you forgot what you were trying to do. And if you watch people screwing up their activities, often it falls into that category. They forgot what they were there for. They forgot what the purpose of it is, right? Like, you, you know, you're at a meeting and the goal of the meeting is to like reach a decision and then leave. But some people start to think that the goal of the meeting is to say this thing that they've been dying to say, right? That's actually not the goal of the meeting, but like, okay. So, so actions are structured importantly in terms of their goals, the goods at which they aim. Now, so far, I hope that makes a certain amount of sense. Now, the next point, um, Aristotle distinguishes between activities that aim at something external versus activities that aim, so to speak, at the very activity itself. Um, so in German, they have two words for walking. Well, they have a special word for going for a walk, spazieren. So that just means just going for a walk. If you walk somewhere, that's zu Fuß gehen. Um, and, but I mean, we do have that in English too. We talk about walking somewhere and we talk about taking a walk, right? So if, if, if you're walking somewhere, I can ask you, where are you going? What are you trying to get to? And you won't have accomplished walking there until you get there. But if your activity is taking a walk, there's no special place you have to go. And you just go for a walk. And I say, what are you trying to accomplish? And you're like, I'm not trying to, what do you mean? What are you asking me? Like, I'm taking a walk. This is what I'm doing. All right? 
So it's important to remember that just because activities have a kind of goal or purpose or a good, that doesn't automatically mean that there's something external to the activity. And this is important because if you forget this, then you think that everything you do has to like accomplish something external. So like, why are you having coffee with this person in order to make a contact so later they'll write you a letter of recommendation? I mean, maybe, but sometimes you can just have coffee with people and that's a good activity in and of itself. Um, and I think, I mean, the, the distinction, as I just stated it, the distinction as I just stated it is probably starker than it is in real life. You know, people who are good at manual crafts like knitting or plumbing, they are trying to get the product, but they also get something out of the process itself, right? And the, the way Aristotle talks about it, you, would, you might miss that point, and, and if he denies this, then he's wrong. Obviously, there's some point to the process as well. It's complicated. Uh, but nonetheless, this seems like an important distinction. Um, and it's worth highlighting to realize that some activities, they don't give rise to anything. But that doesn't mean that they have no point. Because the point of the activity is in the very activity. Now, I mentioned before that activities are sort of characterized uh, in terms of their end. And there are lots of different ends. Carpentry, plumbing, management, knitting. These are all sort of different ends and they give rise to different activities. Furthermore, and this, kind of, this point is an important one for Aristotle, activities can be grouped and they can be grouped hierarchically. So first let me just mention that they can be grouped. So here are a bunch of activities, um, nailing, nailing, you know, shoeing horses, feeding horses, brushing horses. Those activities, they, they are distinct, but they're all related because they, they get grouped together. Now, Aristotle's way of thinking about this involves saying that the, the grouping is hierarchical. There's like a larger larger activity called taking care of the horses. And these smaller activities contribute to the larger activity of taking care of the horses. And then maybe there's an even larger activity, which we could call maybe horsemanship, that involves taking care of the horses, but also riding the horses. So you have activities and they get grouped, and they get grouped by being brought together under a higher level activity. So let's say we have horsemanship. Okay, now we have another activity that involves built, making the armor, cleaning the armor, polishing the armor. And that's part of like being an infantry soldier. Okay, and then horsemanship and being an infantry soldier are both grouped under the military art or whatever. So you keep, it turns out that activities keep getting grouped under higher and higher goals. And so, interestingly, there's a funny way in which the goal of the activity gets displaced or, or pushed farther along, right? So you're tapping in the nail of a horseshoe. You're doing that for the sake of taking care of the horse, for the sake of horsemanship, for the sake of military conquest, for the sake of making your state thrive. So you're going tap, 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 tap. You're like contributing to government. 
or I mean, maybe you're contributing to terrible destruction and evil, but whatever. You're doing something big when you're doing this little thing because your activity is referred to this farther out, larger goal. Okay? So Aristotle takes this to be a kind of observation that sheds a lot of light on a lot of And then he makes a move, which it's not clear how well this move works, but you can ask, is what if a lot of my activities group together around military conquest, and a lot of my other activities group around writing books or whatever, what does, what's the sort of super big activity that all my activities contribute? Now, there's a question of whether, like, maybe there's something going to starting to go wrong in the argument here. But it's, it's a good question to think about. Um, he thinks that there needs to be something that we do. Well, okay, there's two points here. One, he thinks it can't, there are a lot of activities that you engage in only for the sake of something else. You wouldn't do, the, like, you wouldn't just nail, you wouldn't just, like, attach shoes to horses. Unless you were going to, like, at least ride them. Right? That just seems like an activity that's for the sake of something else. So, some activities are pretty clearly for the sake of something else. He says there has to be something final that it's just for the sake of. And if you say, well, why would you do that? There's no answer because it's just worth engaging. Okay, so there has to be something whose value is in itself. And then he adds, if there's several, there needs to be a best. Okay, so then, um, also, he seems to have the idea, this is the part that's a little harder to understand, that it's not just that there are act, there's something out there that is worth engaging in for its own sake, but that somehow everything in life contributes to it. And what's that going to be? Happiness. This is what people pursue for its own sake. You might say, why do you want to be healthy? Well, to be happy. Why do you want to be happy? That seems like a dumb question to Aristotle. Like happiness just is the thing that you want. I mean, not all philosophers agree with this, actually, but Aristotle would just shake his head. Um, you, it's pursued for its own sake, not because it leads to other things, and other things are chosen because they lead to it. And he says that this goal is final and complete. It's final in the sense that it's chosen for its own sake, not for the sake of something beyond it. And it's complete in the sense that if you have it, you don't need anything else. It doesn't really make sense to say, I'm happy, but I need something more. Because like, if you need something more, apparently you're not happy. That's the idea. Okay, so the idea here is that everything aims at happiness. But we haven't actually said what happiness is. Like, what does it look like, so to speak? What does it amount to? And so Aristotle says, we got to think about that. So he says, well, what does a flute player aim at? And the answer is to play the flute. And better, a better answer is to play the flute well, to play the flute as well as it can be played. That's the point of being a flute player. You might make some money, it's true. You might impress the girls, that's true. But the point of flute playing 
as such is to play the flute really well. What's the good of a carpenter? It's to build things well, and so on. Well, <clears throat> what's the good that a human being aims at? What's the point of being a human being? It's to live human life as best as it can be lived. So, it's a sort of weird analogy, but I think Aristotle thinks it's a legitimate analogy. You know, as being a flute player is related to playing the flute really well, being a human being is related to living human life really. And this is related to stuff we heard in the first lecture about actuality, right? You're actualizing your human capacities and living out your human powers and abilities as best you can. Now, the question of whether, the question of how all of the activities of your life fit together to constitute happiness, that's actually a sort of not obvious question. Um, uh, you know, Father Dominic said something, he sort of gave a bit of a stink eye to the idea that, like, what we're aiming at is a basket of goods. And that's fine, but it's actually hard to, I mean, if you're Aquinas and you're like, well, I'll tell you what the good is, it's like being in heaven. Okay, so then you have an easy answer. But if you're Aristotle and you don't have that, it's not so obvious how you're going to explain what happiness is, except as a whole bunch of activities organized together. Now, I mean, I think Aristotle has more to say, but I'm just saying it's not that. It's a tricky question. Um, it takes some effort to figure out how to explain how it isn't just, I've got eight great things going on, and they're not getting in each other's way. What more can you add? Um, that would be pretty good, actually, right? I mean, for many of us, we're like, well, that's plenty. Okay. Um, well, we, see, the thing is, if we had it, we wouldn't, because we would still have that first uh, Augustinian uh, restlessness. We'd be like, yeah, my life's going great, and I'm still not happy. Right, okay. I mean, that's definitely the case, I think. So anyway, um, but I'm not going to like get obsessed about this, but I'm just bringing it up. If you're like, yeah, how is it supposed to fit together? That's a good question. You're not missing something. It's a good question. Okay, so living a good life means living well. It means living excellently. It means living according to excellence. I don't know if we would actually say that in English, according to excellence. But anyway, I'm going to say it because it enables me to say something that sounds more Aristotelian. Aristotle's word for excellence, arete, is also often translated as virtue. And this is just an Aristotle thing to say. You live life according to virtue. So virtue meaning excellence. Now, often we use the word virtue to mean moral virtue being morally good in our sort of narrow modern sense. And sometimes, I mean, back when people believed in sexual virtue, they used the word virtue to just mean sexual virtue. Sometimes, you know? um, that's why we have a vice squad, right? Like, the vice squads don't go and stomp out all kinds of things. They only go after sexual crimes, right? So anyway, um, but anyway, ec virtue here is any kind of human excellence. That's what we have to try to think, to use the word in Aristotle's way. It's any kind of human excellence. So, um, so living well means a living according to human excellence, human virtue. 
Now, you might say, that sounds great, but what is it? Right? It's like being good at tiddlywinks. Is that human excellence? What is human excellence? Well, for Aristotle, the best way to get at this is to think about what is specifically human and highest in human nature, and that's reason. So the excellent or virtuous life is the life lived according to reason. Um, now, you'll note this flows out. If you talk like this, you're already talking more or less in a kind of natural law way. In one sense, anyway, meaning of natural law, you're constructing ethics around human nature. To be, to live ethically well is to live in accordance with your nature as a rational entity. Now, the first and more, more obvious thing about your rational nature is that you're going to be doing some thinking, right? Obviously, that's what rational agents do in the first instance as rational agents. So having excellences of thinking means th being really good at thinking, thinking really well. And indeed, for Aristotle, engaging in high-quality thinking is a key part of being a good and successful and virtuous, excellent, think excellent, virtuous person. Some of this is going to be practical thinking. You're in a situation with a friend, and you have to figure out, like, what does friendship require in this situation? You've got to think it through. Sometimes it requires a bit of reflection, right? So that's a kind of excellence of thinking. Or you look under the bathroom sink, you see a leak, you've got to figure out how to fix it. That's a kind of thinking, too. It's, a more it's also a practical kind of thinking. But other kinds of thinking that we can do excellently are theoretical thinking. So we could try to understand things in mathematics or economics or philosophy. So that's theoretical or contemplative reason. And the first kind was practical reason. Practical reason meaning it's oriented towards acting, towards doing something. Okay, so being excellent according to human excellence, being rational, being rational involves thinking well but that's not all, because for Aristotle, your thinking is supposed to influence and shed light on and inform not only your thinking itself, but also your feelings and your actions. So Aristotle thinks that we, there's a difference between having right feelings in the right way at the right time and having inappropriate feelings. Nowadays, we like to say your feelings are your feelings. Now, if what that means is, look, you've got the feelings that you have that may not be the best, we might as well start there by admitting that, then that's fine. But if that phrase means, well, you can't have wrong feelings because your feelings are your feelings, and well, how could anybody judge you for your feelings? Aristotle would say that's ridiculous. You know? So here, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, if, uh, let's say we're sitting at the table, and the phone rings, and my wife answers the phone. Like, she shouldn't do that, but anyway, let it go. So she says, hello? Oh, no, no, thank you. No, we're definitely not interested. Please put us on your do not call list. It hangs up. Okay? And I say, who is that? She goes, I don't know, some telemarketer. I asked him to put us on the do not call list. I said, him? You asked him? You're talking to some guy? Who is it? And she goes, I don't know, like a telemarketer. I'm like, so wait, what is this? You're talking to guys now? Who is he? 
right? Okay, now I could just say, well, my feelings are my feelings, and maybe, but like, there's obviously some in something inappropriate in my reaction here, right? I'm overreacting and becoming like a ragey, jealous husband over, yeah, a telemarketer call. Okay, so there's such a thing as having irrational emotional reactions, and Aristotle is big into this. You have to learn to get good emotional reactions. Um, and then correspondingly, there are the actions, like not only were my feelings in that example inappropriate, but also my action of like going off on my wife for this, that was also incorrect, right? So it's not just your thoughts, but it's also your feelings and your actions. And all of those need to be in accord with reason. They need to be measure up to reason, to fit the rule of reason. Okay, so then living according to reason, if you can do it, you're going to have a harmonious life in which you think well and truthfully, and you have appropriate feelings, and you act out of correct thoughts and correct feelings. That's going to be a life according to reason. So, and it's good to just think about it, um, you know, in terms of some examples, right? If someone comes to your house to dinner, to have dinner, some people are really good at this, right? They're like, they're really welcoming. They know what to say could tell they really enjoy having guests. They take your coat. What would you like to drink? Oh, I can tell you don't like that. Like, can I get you something else? They're just, they're really good at this. They're smooth. They're having a good time. They're good. They have the virtue of hospitality. Some people are not very good at this. They're kind of awkward. Maybe they're not rude. Some people are rude. That's worse. But anyway, so this is a kind of human excellence. Um, or you find somebody's wallet and you're like, oh, somebody's wallet. I hope I can return it. Then you look inside, oh, big win. There's a driver's license. This is going to be easy to return their wallet, right? And it just doesn't occur to you, take the money and throw it in the trash can, right? Okay, so if you, if you do it the right way and you, you have the right feelings and all the rest, then you're like really virtuous. Maybe you fall short of that. Maybe you're like, whoa, there's $200. But you make yourself return it. That's better than stealing it. It's not quite as good as being really virtuous. Now, let me add, what makes your actions be virtuous and not just a brief shining moment is that this is the way you do it routinely. You have become the sort of person who just routinely does it the right way. Because to have a virtue, really, in Aristotle's sense, um, it's become, well, this is an expression that we use, and it's very appropriate here, it's second nature to you. You've taken on a second nature. You're not just any old kind of human being. You're the kind of human being who is honest, or you're the kind of human being who is hospitable. And so you've, you've been transformed um, into the kind of person who acts well. Unfortunately, um, you can also have a second nature that's a bad second nature, or you've just become the sort of person who regularly um, acts badly. That's called having a vice. You should try to avoid acquiring these. They're hard to get rid of. Um, ask me how I know. So um, <laughs> I had to say that. So, um, okay. So the goal of life is happiness. Happiness means living well, living virtuously. Now, two refinements. First of all, this is a question of, of activity, of actuality, not just potentiality. So it's actually not true for Aristotle that the goal of life is to become a good person. Because if you become a good person and then just take a nap for the rest of your life, you blew it. You're supposed to actually live it out. You're supposed to do something 
with your goodness. This is why, like musicians, they, they don't like to just sit around being musical. They want to play, right? Athletes want to play. They want to do their thing. The second refinement, Aristotle says rather demandingly, <clears throat> throughout a whole life, you want to live excellently throughout a whole life. So you're not just going to have a good day and say, wow, I had a great life, right? No. Now, you know, usually, I mean, a whole life, that's pretty demanding. It's probably too late for most of us. Um, we've had at least a few bad days up until now. But you see the point Aristotle is trying to make. It doesn't really, it counts more as happiness the more it takes over your whole life. Okay. So his official definition of happiness is the activity of the soul according to virtue throughout a whole life. Okay. So it's activity. It's not just potentiality. Of the soul according to virtue, excellence, in all the different ways we've been talking about, throughout a whole life. Okay, so at the beginning I said ethics was about living well, and also that ethics is about happiness. And now you can see in Aristotle's way of thinking, basically living well and happiness, they're the same thing. Happiness just is functioning well as a human being. When you're firing on all cylinders in a consistent way, you are, you're just killing it as a human being. That's what happiness is. So living well and being happy are the same. Um, now, Aristotle's word here is eudaimonia. You could also translate it as blessedness. That's how it's going to go into Latin. It's a good idea to go happiness, blessedness, happiness, blessedness. Sort of go back and forth between them because each of them has a slightly different flavor. And it helps you to develop more flexible ideas about what eudaimonia means. Um, in Greek, a daimon is kind of like a little godlet or something like that. And so eudaimonia can mean like you're under the beneficial influence of a good little godlet. Um, and that's kind of like being blessed. So I think there's a kind of tighter connection between eudaimonia and blessedness. Now, I think, maybe I'm wrong, I think that the English word happiness emphasizes a little bit more than Aristotle's word, emphasizes a little bit more the idea of feeling, happiness as a, a feeling. Maybe, maybe that's not true, this linguistic contrast that I'm making. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. I just want to talk about the relationship between happiness, as Aristotle defines it, and feeling good. It's, it's an important question because You'll notice if I define happiness as the life lived according to excellence throughout a whole life, I didn't say anything about how it feels. And that's slightly weird. All right. So let's talk about pleasure, feeling good. This is actually a really strange concept. It's actually very elusive to try to figure out what pleasure is. Aristotle worries about it. Um, Anscombe says something um, like, uh, this is Elizabeth Anscombe, a 20th century philosopher, um, uh, something like, um, pleasure is a really difficult concept. When Aristotle talked about it, it was one of the few places where he just sort of like made a hash of it. And that's not quite what she says. But um, um, 
I, I don't think he made a hash of it. I mean, that she didn't say that either. But you know, she, she says, not without reason, that it's not entirely clear what Aristotle is driving. Um, but it's something like, well, let me say this. So for Aristotle, if you perform an action well, it will be pleasurable. Especially if you perform this action with respect to a good object. So that sounds super abstract. So how about this? Looking at things is fun, right? You could just like sit there on a bench and just like look around. I mean, it's not like ecstatically pleasurable, but like it's probably more pleasurable than having your eyes closed, right? You just kind of like look around. Looking at them sort of more carefully is more fun. And if they're nice things to look at, I mean, if you're just looking at trash, it's not much fun. But if people like actually go to art galleries to put themselves into a place where they can look at things that are really, really enjoyable to look at. Like they build entire buildings and people pay money to enter them. Okay? So there's a lot of tricky questions here. Like what exactly is the pleasure? Like what is that? But for our purposes, what's important to see is just that the pleasure piggybacks on the good activity. This is Aristotle's idea. So it's not like this, this thing that you can pursue. It piggybacks on good activity and activities performed well. So just like think of yourself like doing math. Like if you're doing it well and you're getting it and you understand it's fun. And if you don't understand the problem and you're completely confused, it's very painful. Right? So being good at stuff. Well, like if you're like me and you're really bad at dancing. I don't like dancing. And I stink at dancing. Those two things are very closely related. Okay? All right. So. Now, there are a lot of complications. We can't go into all of them here. Everyone knows that you can take pleasure in bad things. And that needs explaining. Aristotle is aware of this problem. But I just want to keep moving. What is the relationship between pleasure, feeling good, and happiness? Well, if the goodness of... So, remember, the pleasure of a good action follows from the goodness of the action. It piggybacks on it. You do something good, and pleasure comes along for the ride. Well, life is like that. If you act well consistently, then, on the whole, your life will be pleasant and enjoyable. It's enjoyable to wake up on time. It's enjoyable to have breakfast. It's enjoyable to catch the bus rather than miss the bus. If you're doing things right, it's going to be pretty fun. Now. Aristotle is aware, keenly aware, that some catastrophe might befall you. I mean, if you lived in, you know, the 300s BC, the chance that something horrible was going to happen to you were actually pretty good. Um, so he's very aware of this. Um, and if this happens, you will be living well, but there will be a lot of pain in your life. And so Aristotle says that this will make your happiness incomplete or imperfect. He doesn't have the, you know, the answers available to him that a Christian might have. But even so, he still thinks that virtue and pleasure are connected because if you're a, a good person, then when things go wrong, you can handle it better. You're go it's going to be less bad for you. If you're a bad person, it would be even worse. So you always want to be a good person, even if um, something terrible happens in your life. Um, it, it, it'll still be, you'll still be better off.
Okay. Now, at this point, I want to insert a remark about amusement, having fun in a sort of relatively speaking superficial sense. If you think of happiness as what you choose for its own sake, then Aristotle says, don't people choose amusement for its own sake? They do. So why isn't that the goal of life? It's a pretty good objection to Aristotle, right? Why not just say that having fun, like going to the beach, that's the goal of life? Well, Aristotle would say, look, you've got to aim higher than that. You should aim it at the best kind of activity, not just something that's enjoyable. Um, and, you know, he says sort of snobby things like, you know, like just eating, like anybody can do that. Animals can do that, you know. So um, you want to aim at something that's sort of superior. Um, now, he's not against having fun, okay? But he thinks that it should be subordinated to serious living. We have fun as a way to relax and rest up. That's why we call it recreation, recreation, right? You get restored for serious activity. Now, for Aristotle, the serious activity is not going to be grim. It's going to be intensely pleasurable, right? But it's not going to be goofing off. So um, there's a place for amusement, but it's not the central place. Um, so it's interesting to think about what this means in practical terms. Um, sometimes people act like they, the purpose of your job is to enable you to go on vacation. And Aristotle would say, like, ideally, it's the exact opposite. The purpose of vocation is to get you ready so you can go back to work. Now, that's great if your job is like being a free Greek citizen, sitting around talking philosophy. You know, if your job is like a really crappy job, like being a slave who supports Aristotle's activity, then it's not that easy, right? So, so maybe for you, the purpose of your job is to, like, make it possible to eat and not die. But if you have free time, you should try, if you can, to use at least some of it on serious activity rather than mere amusement. So, and, and I mean, leaving aside the, the lot of slaves in ancient Athens, none, I mean, that none of us is one of them. Um, <clears throat> you know, whether, for each of us, we should just say to ourselves, do I spend too much time goofing off? Should I spend a little more of my free time on serious high-level activities. Now, maybe the answer is no, I'm completely fried. That's fine, but you, this is a, requires some discernment. Um, but maybe people spend a little bit too much time watching TV or doing things on Instagram or whatever. Um, so, the true goal of human life is excellent living. That means living according to reason. Still, you could ask, say more. What does this look like? So I want to make a distinction that Aristotle makes. Um, I'm getting near the end. You'll be glad to hear. Um, he describes two basic ways to go about living a human life according to reason. He thinks they're both good. He sort of says one of them is better than the other. The distinction, I'll lay out the distinction in a really sort of hard and fast way. And then I think in practice, it's not always as sharp. as. It, but this is always what happens, right? When you try to distinguish things, you make these hard conceptual distinctions, but maybe real life is a little more complicated. Okay, so two forms of living according to reason. One of them is practice. 
it's oriented towards living well in society. You deliberate together with other people about how best to act and to carry out shared activities in your community, and then you carry out those decisions. That's a way to live rationally, according to reason. Another way is more theoretical. You spend your time thinking intensely and hopefully accurately about the truth of things, about biology or mathematics or philosophy or whatever. So the first kind of life is more practical, even political. You can call it an active life, and people call it the active life, TM. The second kind of life is more theoretical. You could call it a theoretical life or a contemplative life. You're basically, you think in order to understand things, not in order to do something about it. Now, Aristotle says that both of these are good. He says that the theoretical life is better in certain ways. So, first of all, he thinks that theoretical reason is kind of like, it's not just reason, it's like the highest kind of reason. So, he gives a kind of priority to that. Um, it's sort of like the highest part of the highest part, if you know what I mean. Also, he says, he says it's more continuous, like you could do it for more hours a day than for some other things. Now, I mean, I, you, could, you could debate about this, right? You, you can do it for more hours a, a day than some things, but not just anything. Some things you can do for more hours, because thinking is impossible. But he says this. He says it's the most pleasant. And he says that you are not so dependent on outside things. You need some, you need enough people doing the work that you have time, <clears throat> but um, you don't need huge amounts of money, stuff like that, right? So just think like, if your activity is, okay, so think if you're, let's just compare two activities. One activity is, um, let's say your thing is football. So you need a large space and 21 other people. That's like a lot. That's a pretty big ask. Um, if your thing is reading poetry, you just need a book of poetry. That's easier to find on a consistent basis than 21 other people who want to play. Okay, so that's the kind of thing he has in mind. And he actually says that, like, that you know, having a lot of outside things could actually be a hindrance. Like, if your house is too big, you've got to spend all day cleaning it. You know, if you just have a little house, it's easier. Um, now, Okay, so that's like this distinction between the two lives. I think it's possible to overstate the difference. Um, everybody has to live the active life at least a little bit. You know, you probably, if you're leading a theoretical life, maybe I was going to say you have to sharpen your pencil. Well, maybe you have a servant there to sharpen your pen, 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 the pencil for you. Okay, but you at least have to like turn to your right to ask, you know, or maybe he's so good he's like watching. I don't know, but like you have to do stuff from time to time, right? You have to eat occasionally, and you're not engaging in the theoretical life at that moment. Uh, and you know, if you don't have like an army of slaves hanging around, you're going to have to do a little bit more. So, like, think about monks, okay? This is what people say about monks they pray all day. Well, that's just not true. Like, just go onto the website of any monastery. And they have their horarium there, orarium. Uh, they it's, they're really fun to look at. Those people get up so early in the morning. It's so much fun to think about. So, um, 
But like they don't pray all day. It's simply false. They work. They have a lot of work to do. Now, partly this is sort of a Christian thing here. I think Christians put more value in work than somebody like Aristotle would. So it's complicated, but I'm just saying, even for Aristotle, you gotta do stuff from time to time. So no one lives a purely, purely contemplative life. Furthermore, coming at it from the other side now, people who live predominantly active lives can engage in theoretical and contemplative activity. Now, it requires some sacrifice on their part. They have to spend less time watching television. They have to spend less time screwing around on the internet. Um, they might decide to have a smaller house, so it requires less work. But some, many, I don't say all, but many people who have essentially active lives could carve out some time for contemplative activity. So instead of going on a beach vacation, you could come and spend a week at like an event sponsored by the Thomistic Institute and the uh, Institute for Human Ecology. That's right. Like, look at you guys. You're here, right? That's what I'm trying to say. So you've done that. Okay. So I don't want to, I don't want to go too far in any direction. It's inaccurate to say that Aristotle doesn't give a kind of favor to the contemplative life. He does. But I think it's possible to, to overstate how different they are. But anyway, he does love the contemplative life. He says, it's the way the gods live. Wouldn't that be great? If we could do that, we should try. Okay. Um, now, I'm almost done. Um, just sort of summing up, okay? Ethics is concerned with living the best life, which is the life according to reason, takes these various forms. You become a kind of person who consistently thinks, feels, and acts in a rational way, and then you live it out, okay? Now, in the rest, so that's, I'm done with this introductory look at Aristotle's ethics. Um, in the other three lectures that I'll be giving this week, I'm going to be talking about friendship. Friendship is a part of the good life for Aristotle. It's an extremely important part of it. So we're going to look at what he has to say about that. But this is the context into which the rest of the remarks. There's time for questions. And then yeah. So in the back and then you know. Um, you mentioned activities. Uh, nice. Okay, so did everybody hear that? So if you have actions that are the sort which can be performed for their own sake, um, are they always performed intentionally? Was that how you put it? Um, okay, so I'm going to fall back on this. Surely the paradigm case is going to be one that's performed intentionally. Right? Like taking a walk. You know, if I said are you taking a walk? And he said, well, I guess I am. Like, that would be weird. Right? Like, normally you know what you're doing. What do you, I mean, are you, don't take this as an insult. Are you asking the question in the abstract or do you have something in mind? No, it's more, more abstract. No, that's okay. That's okay. It's a good question. I mean, the whole question of what intentional action is and what it really boils down to, it turns out to be quite difficult. Um, so before I mentioned Elizabeth Anscombe, she wrote this impossible to understand book, which I strongly recommend, called, um, <laughs> called Intention. But it's, it's like brutally hard to understand. Um, so maybe I don't recommend it. But, um, but she talks a lot about, she doesn't like the idea 
she's kind of anti-Cartesian, kind of. And so she says, like, for an action to be intentional, you don't have to be, like, having a little speech going on in your head. I am taking a walk for it. That, it doesn't have to be intentional in that. It turns out what it means very, very roughly is that it makes sense to ask why are you doing it in a certain way. He spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that is. So I can say, what's going on here? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? You say, well, I'm taking a walk. And that has a kind of intelligibility to it. Um, so that might be enough to make it intentional, even though you're not thinking. Does that help? So in other words, if, if, if you're doing something for a reason that you can articulate, then maybe that's like very roughly what it means to say you're doing it intentionally. Even if you're not at the moment thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, it would be a very weird case. You know, if you just came upon me and said, whoa, do you live in this part of town? I said, what? Oh, where am I? What am I doing here? Right? That would be very straight, right? And it could happen. Um, but normally, people know roughly what it is. Um, but, I mean, it gets complicated, right? Like, maybe, um, you know, um, somebody says to me, like, why do you always go like this when you're lecturing? Do I do that? I don't know. So, like, that's a funny case. Let's thank our speaker. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.